0: What did you think being in a submarine was going to be like? I thought it was going to be very strategic and mechanical and tactical and exciting. And what was it instead? It was like being in an underwater building for 19 days.
1: (laughs) I'm Steven Tyler, and this is No Indie. Each week on the show, I share a conversation with one of the good people doing their best right here in Indianapolis. This is episode number three, and today's guest is the founder and chief catalyst at Kairos Consulting, Chip Knighty. Chip's career has included consulting, teaching, coaching, and leadership roles in the US Marine Corps and the private sector. Today's episode is part one of our conversation. The conclusion is episode four. And will be available in your feed next Thursday morning. One last thing before we get to Chip, as you are listening today, tweet a photo of what you are doing while you listen. In the tweet, mention at No Indie Show with the hashtag #DoingMyBest. I had a good time reading your tweets last week, and I will pick a new person this week to win a No Indie T-shirt. Thank you for listening. Here is part one of my conversation with Chip Knighty.
0: So I'm going to start by talking about your military career. Okay. I went to the Naval Academy and about a sixth of all Naval Academy grads go into the Marine Corps. Really?
2: Mm -hmm. How does that work?
0: So there's uh, an Air Force Academy and Air Force officers, some Air Force officers get commissioned from the Air Force Academy. West Point Uh army officers and Navy and Marine officers get commissioned from the Naval Academy. It's not the Navy Academy. It's the Naval Academy. Oh. So the Navy and Marine Corps are the two Naval services. Marines are sometimes called soldiers from the sea. You probably didn't know that. Oh, you teach me all kinds of things. Marines bread and butter is amphibious warfare. So okay, that's what we're most known for. What were you hoping for when you joined the Marines? Uh, Joined the Marines. That's interesting. So I spent uh, four years first at an undergrad at the Naval Academy. Okay. And didn't know that I was going to become a Marine when I started. I thought I wanted to be a submariner. Oh. 19 days underwater with some submariners disabused me of that notion. What did you think being in a submarine was going to be like? I thought it was going to be very strategic and mechanical and tactical and exciting. And what was it instead? It was like being in an underwater building for 19 days. <laughs> With no windows? With very, very small bed that you couldn't even roll over in because the bed the bunk on top of you was so tight. Was oh, so, wow. so low, yeah, like a low ceiling bed. How long had you been thinking about being
2: a submariner before you had the realization, the experience and realization that that was not for you? About
0: a year, I think. Okay. I mean, the reason I went to the Naval Academy is I went to a career counselor, a guy named Jack Fadley, who's like a legend in Indianapolis. And he said, you should, based on your test scores, you should probably be a bus driver, an optometrist, or a military officer. He said, have you ever considered one of the, the military academies? I'm like, no. And so I went and visited the Air Force Academy and it felt very sterile and kind of cold and Really didn't feel it like home at all. And then I visited the Naval Academy. I stepped one foot on the yard. I'm like, this is it. I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but I was, I was
2: sold. So overall, the military, you had an expectation of what it would be, and then it turned out to be something different, I assume. Uh, uh,
0: Steven, I don't have many expectations for my life. I kind of take it as it comes. Yeah. And uh, I suppose I probably had some sense of what the military might be like from watching movies. Yeah. But I learned that the movies are not an accurate portrayal of the military. So one thing that was really exciting for me was the Naval Academy was this four-year leadership laboratory. And it was one year of exclusively, I shouldn't say exclusively, but mostly followership, which has never been a forte of mine. Mm -hmm. And then it was three years of uh, being in charge of what other people do and fail to do 100%. And that accountability just teaches some really good leadership.
2: Let's start with what's followership. Can you describe that for people? What's the experience like? Uh, um, For me personally, or what is followership? I guess what's an example of followership in the military? What's life like under followership?
0: Yeah, well, uh, so let me define a couple of terms. Okay. One is leadership. Leadership to me means influence. Okay. And then another term that's relevant is authority. Authority is uh, the legitimate expectation of compliance with one's instructions. Okay. So a father would have authority over one's children up to a certain age, right? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that father's necessarily a good leader. The father may not have great influence, may not have earned great influence. Okay. But you can lead your boss, even though your boss has authority over you. Okay. Right. So I think in all cases, we are called to both lead and follow when appropriate. And there's wisdom and discernment required to figure out when am I supposed to lead and when am I supposed to follow? When am I supposed to influence and when am I supposed to be influenced? Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. So there was an awful lot of me being influenced uh-huh. for the first year at the Naval Academy. Okay.
2: Okay. All right. That makes sense. And then you went into this time of responsibility.
0: Yeah. Increasing responsibilities throughout the next three years. Okay. And uh, I, I, of course, there's also leadership required of freshmen or plebes at the Naval Academy. Um, but and a plebe is? A freshman at the Naval Academy okay, or right. at West Point. They call them duallys at the Air Force Academy for some reason. I don't know what that means. But I was never interested enough to find out. (laughs) Uh, Eventually in the Marines, you were leading tanks? Well, technically a tank is just a hunk of metal, so you can't lead the tank. That's right. You can lead the people who are driving, loading, gunning, and commanding the tank. Okay. So a uh, M1 Abrams tank has four positions in it, four crew members. Uh, Generally, the most junior crew member is called the loader. And okay. his job is to take a large round of ammunition and shove it in the breach of a large cannon. And also he has a machine gun to defend the proximity of the tank, if there should there be anybody who's nearby that needs defending against. Okay. Uh, the next most senior position would be the driver. And the driver is the only one who sits down in the hole. Everybody else sits up in the turret that rotates around. Okay. Uh, driving a tank, by the way, is really, really fun. <laughs> And uh, then the next most senior person is the gunner, who's second in command of the tank, and he sits low in the turret, and he's responsible for the main weapon systems. And then you have the tank commander, who sits up higher, also has a machine gun, but is responsible for everything that happens on that tank. Okay. So a tank platoon is a group of four tanks, and a junior marine officer, generally a second lieutenant or a first lieutenant, would be the platoon commander. Who would not only command his own tank but be in charge of three other tanks as well. Okay. Does that make sense? It does. And then uh, the next higher unit of that would be a tank company which is three platoons so 12 plus two headquarters tanks for the commanding officer and the executive officer's tanks and that's called the headquarters section. So a total of 14 tanks in a tank company. Okay. And so my uh, last job in the tank battalion was to be a tank company executive officer so I was second in command of that company of 14 tanks and all the Marines that were responsible for that gear and getting it combat ready.
2: Okay. How old were you when you were second in command of a group of tanks?
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a great question. 24. Wow. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing is, is I felt really old and mature at the time. <laughs> 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 Isn't that crazy?
2: Yeah. Do you, I can't name many 24 year olds that I would be willing to give that much responsibility to. Did you feel, do you even retrospect now, do you feel like you were equipped to do what your job? I did.
0: And I looked around at all the other Marines that were in the the same position I was in the other tank companies. And I felt, yep, they're the right ones to do that.
2: What did you learn from having so much responsibility at that early age? Um,
0: You know, there's a, there's a a secondary question there that I'm going to answer first. Please. Well, I'm actually not going to answer it. I'm going to tell you, I don't know the answer to okay. it. And somebody once asked me, they're like, well, how did the military, how did your military experience change you? And my answer is, I don't know. Like it was just my experience. Mm. I don't know what I would have been if I didn't spend, if I hadn't spent seven years in the Marine Corps. All I know is to some degree what I'm like now. So um, the the training that I received was exquisite. One of the things I love about the Marine Corps is there is such a focus on leadership. They have a, a an unofficial, uh, I don't know. I just, I've heard this mantra before. I, I never saw it written down anywhere, but it's where two Marines gather, one is in charge. Hmm. So the expectation is whoever senior is going to take charge and make something happen. So we're not just going to tolerate whatever the status quo is. We're going to improve whatever the situation is. Hmm. If you, if you plop a group of Marines down on a patch of dirt, You come back 24 hours later, you better expect that it's going to be a defended patch of dirt with dug-in foxholes and emplacements and fields of fire all figured out. So there's a a phrase, improving your situation all the time. So there's a creativity that's required of that. There's a a high initiative that's required. And that's one of the things I loved about the Marine Corps is leaders at all levels up and down the chain of command were expected to be high initiative. It's not a, a mindless following orders kind of structure. It's a, here's your mission you figure out how to do it and take the initiative to figure it out. So Marines are some of the most creative, innovative, high initiative people that I know, Wow, which is surprising to a lot of people.
2: Why is it surprising to people?
0: Uh, Cause they've seen heartbreak Ridge and other movies. And they think that Marines just charge the machine gun nest mindlessly. Uh, I don't know any Marine who would charge right into a machine gun nest. They'd figure a way around into the back and how to call in air support. And we're going to take it out with minimal casualties.
2: Okay. Um, so you were in for seven years. Yep how did you know it was time to leave?
0: We had just had our first kid. So my daughter, Saray, who's now 17. So this was in 2000. And, uh, we, so she was born in early 2000. And I just thought, you know, instant, the, the threat of instant deployment worldwide for combat operations Mm -hmm. and raising a family. Yeah. (laughs) Those are hard to, to integrate. And it became clear to me that it was a great time for me to leave. Uh, I felt that serving can happen lots of ways. I've always believed in integrating professional and personal life. And I just thought, you know what? Corporate America probably has some other things to offer uh, besides what I've got here. And that probably be good for me in my development. I probably have something to offer corporate America. So I was under the impression that corporate America was a meritocracy. So I was looking forward to that. <laughs> um,
2: I want to switch and talk about leadership. We've been talking about quite a bit already, but kind of exclusively What's a piece of conventional wisdom about leadership that you don't agree with?
0: Hmm. Well, there's some nuance to this answer, so bear with me. Okay. Uh, Lately, it's been really fashionable to say something to the effect of ignore people's weaknesses, only focus on their strengths, and that's the way to get the best out of people. And I think there's actually, I think life is more complicated than that. Mm Mm-hmm. I think people have natural personality traits and gifts and strengths that they absolutely need to leverage. And there are personality gaps and weaknesses that are natural hardwiring that you're never going to fix in people. Uh, If you put me into a room, a dark room, no windows, and you said you have to do data entry for eight hours a day, I get two hours into it and the data entry would start not being really good. Mm -hmm. Right? Like I'm just not. I don't, I'm not wired that way. Yeah. And uh, so I, I say, you know, trying to get me to do date entry like that would be like trying to get a cow to bark. It's not going to sound really good and it's going to piss off the dogs. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so I agree with that conventional, that new conventional wisdom in that regard. Mm-hmm. But I also think there's a different aspect of personality, which is about maturity. And so if you think about our self-awareness or our other's awareness or our self-regulation or our selflessness, those are all parts of our character and our maturation. Mm -hmm. And there it is not only foolish, but it's dangerous to focus only on strengths and ignore the weaknesses Mm. because we're all in a journey of personal maturation. And in fact, professionally, I've dedicated most of my life to helping people mature as leaders. And that's where I think the real money is because where we self-sabotage is not in the area of not knowing our personality strengths, we self-sabotage being blind to our own maturity weaknesses.
2: What's self-sabotage? Can you define that?
0: Yeah, where we do something that gets on our own way, and oftentimes it's unintentional. Okay. Uh, some, some people, I think, I imagine self-sabotage intentionally, but I, I don't think that's as common as people who uh, make mistakes unintentionally because of blind spots, or they don't have people around them to help them uh, see themselves in a, in a more accurate way. So there's a phrase I heard from somebody and I, I'm i stealing this and I, I wish I could attribute it to somebody, but I love it and I use it all the time. It's, you can't read the label from the inside of the bottle. So mm-hmm. you just see the world from your own perspective and it's really, it's a blessing when you get a chance to see how you really are perceived by others, when you get to see what your impact truly is compared to what you intended your impact to be. But we need to be in community for that to happen. You can't do it alone.
2: Oh, talk about that.
0: Yeah. So part of um, what's been really exciting for me in the professional work that we're doing at Kairos is understanding or coming to understand for my own life and to the lives of those that I love that are around me and for those that I'm coming in contact with professionally, that leadership, uh, how to phrase this, I'll say people grow best in community. And that growth is sustained best in community. Okay. And so, of course, there are ways we can sort of haphazardly grow as individuals without other people helping us. But it's such an accelerator to have somebody else's view of you, their compassion towards you, their gentle guidance, advice, perspective, uh, finding thought partners around you. Uh, It's so important for people to tell us who we can be, to call us forth into that, and to support us along those journeys. Otherwise, of course, we get very stagnant. What's the difference between – I've seen people that say they have community, Mm
2: -hmm. but it's really a bunch of people with noise around them. Mm. Um, Can you describe what a characteristic of community is? Mm. Uh,
0: There's a phrase that's been resonating in my mind these past couple of months, which is healing community. So I believe that we're all walking wounded and we all need healing. And that's part of our growth and maturation journey. And so I've found the best communities have a level of authenticity mm-hmm. uh, where it is safe enough to be who you really are. And so that people can see you and um, you, can, you can air your dirty laundry and not be condemned or judged for it. So that's one piece is that safety to be authentic I think there's also a courage that's demonstrated in real community where people say hard things to each other out of love. Mm -hmm. And there's a gentleness and a tenderness in the way they say hard things because they know it hurts. They don't want to hurt other people, but they know that sometimes uh, the hard things that we need to hear do sting a little bit. Mm -hmm. So uh, another way to say that would be good communities recognize there's a difference between pain and harm. Hmm. So a nurse that says, I'm going to give you a shot and it's going to hurt, And for a week, it's going to hurt because your arm's going to be sore, but there's some benefits. And so I think the pain will be worth it. That's different than somebody who does something that is actually harmful. We say, yes, I'll take the shot. I'll take Mm -hmm. the pain because I know it's good for me. I think in healthy healing communities, we have people who recognize that they can hear painful things and it's not harmful. And there are people who have the courage to say painful things out of love that are not harmful, but actually beneficial.
2: What guidance or advice could you give to someone who
0: doesn't have that in their life and is trying to find it? Well, uh, in vulnerable relationships, somebody has to take the first step of being vulnerable, mm-hmm. and the reason it's vulnerable is because you might get hurt, mm-hmm. you might even get harmed, right? So there's a risk associated with trying to go deeper with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's probably ways that we can test certain relationships. So. If you think of all the relationships around you, you might have an intuition that, well, that would be a person I'd like to be in deeper, more healing community with. Test that. Go say, hey, I'd like to have a conversation about something I'm struggling with or something that I'm, some emotion I'm feeling or some hard thing I'm dealing with in life and see how they respond. And if you find that that person is one who responds with compassion and love and is trying to reciprocate and also wants to be vulnerable, well, then you've started building vulnerable community. if you don't have anybody that comes to mind, I would say find some new community. You can find it probably in church. You can find it in some, you know, a Rotary or a Kiwanis club. You can uh, perhaps find it in some uh, common group that does the same. You find a gaming community, right? Like people enjoy board games. Go find a board gaming community and play some board games and then ask somebody if they want to have a deeper conversation at some point. Okay. That sounds kind of silly, but whatever the common interest would be. I don't know why board games came to mind because I like board games. I okay. Guess. What's your favorite I, game? Uh, I am I have a love-hate relationship with Settlers of Catan. Nerd. I am. Well, Settlers.
2: I was going to say nerd no
0: matter what you said. <laughs> uh, so can I speak a little bit about games because it's a little bit of an obsession Please. for me right now? Please. So I think the ideal game should have a combination of strategy and luck and a social element where you have to show up socially with other people and convince them to do something else. Okay. Catan has all of that. So to me, it is the ideal game in that regard. What I'm frustrated with is I have had not a very good winning streak lately because I play in a community, my wife and friends who are talented Catan players. And I get really frustrated when I just continually lose at this game. <laughs> it's a, it's a game of
2: negotiation. Is that right? I've only played once and I was really bad because I, Um, just like when you're selling a used car, you think it's worth more than it actually is. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm going to steer us back towards this leadership stuff. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about community. You're talking about being vulnerable. Um, I've heard you call it deep work of the heart and soul before. Mm, Yeah. You're asking someone not only to be a better manager and their company, you're asking them to be a better husband, a better father, a better friend. Yeah.
0: Uh, And I have a special advantage being a consultant that I can fire any client. Right. Uh, And so I I know that this is um, it's almost like cheating for me because people in a work environment where they have to deal with the people that they're that they're with. I mean, technically anybody can quit. Right? We're we're all volunteers to some degree in in the work that we do. Um, But I I think. um, Yeah. So from a consulting standpoint, like I have, I've gotten much better in the 11 years of doing this in finding the clients Mm -hmm. who are open and have an adequate level of humility and self-awareness and curiosity and courage to do the hard work that we're asking them to do. Like, I can't, I can't change anybody. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I can't even change myself, even if I want to. So all we can do as consultants, as leaders is create the conditions or the context or the arena in which people can do the hard work or the battle that they need to do in order for them to grow. So I can invite growth. I can encourage growth. I can exhort growth. I can cast a vision for what growth looks like. But I'm not the one who does the heavy lifting. I mean, I'll walk alongside people when they do the heavy lifting because it's helpful to have somebody walk alongside you when you're doing the heavy lifting. But I don't change anybody. Mm. So I think that's important to recognize, too, in any professional setting, is that we can't change anybody. We can coerce them. We can use our authority to make them do something But that's not the same thing as a sustainable transformation of the heart and soul that's going to make them do that long term of their own volition. Mm -hmm. They're only doing it because you're coercing them. Mm -hmm. Can you give some practical examples of what this personal growth of character looks like compared to just adding more skills to someone's life? There is a uh, Australian that I whom I have never met named Nick Petrie, and he works at the Center for Creative Leadership, which is a great organization. And he had, I think he coined the phrase, I'm at least attributing it to him. It's called vertical development. Okay. And he says vertical development, well, let me start with horizontal development. Horizontal development is when we, uh, it's what typical training does. Mm-hmm. It helps people with their knowledge, their skills, their abilities. We increase their, their competency okay. along, along that axis. Vertical development, he says, is its character growth, its maturation It's getting a new mental model to think differently about the world or the problems that you're facing. And so I personally, and we at Kairos get really, really excited about vertical development Mm -hmm. and we'll do some horizontal development if we have to, but it's not what stirs our souls. So um, what Nick says, and this is brilliant, I think is there's three ingredients for that vertical development. He says, the first thing that you need is heat, which I've referenced before. Mm -hmm. And heat is a challenge that's bigger than your current capacity to solve it. You know, so you imagine going into a new job that you're like, I've never, I've never managed 120 people before. Yeah. I've only managed 12 people before. Okay, maybe a bigger challenge than you're ready for right now. Or uh, I've got to start a new market in Latin America. I've never done that before. Okay, well, that that would be heat. There, mm-hmm. And And what that does is it forces us to realize we are not enough as a leader to tackle that challenge the way it needs to be tackled. So that's heat. Second ingredient would be what he calls colliding perspectives. And that's somebody who can challenge the way we think about things, challenge our own mental models and say, I understand why you're thinking about that way. Makes sense to me. That's consistent with your experience so far. Let me give you a new experience or tell you about my experience in a way that might shift the way you're thinking about that. And oftentimes we don't like colliding perspectives. And it seems to me now more than ever, we prefer to be in spaces where we hear other people who agree with us. Oh, yeah. That's dangerous. And the third thing that helps us in this uh, journey of vertical development is what Nick calls elevated sense-making. And so you need somebody who's walked a little farther down that path of vertical development than you Mm -hmm. to help you integrate those colliding perspectives into your context of heat to help you stabilize on a new mental model in your growth, right? So think of a Sherpa, it's somebody who's a guide, somebody who can help you make sense of that. So whether that's a mentor, a coach, a counselor, an advisor, whatever it is, it's somebody who knows, who can, um, able will say a wiser, mature guide to help you figure it out while you're going through it. Okay. And he says, if you miss any of those three things, it's really hard to get that vertical development. Interesting. And I think we, we grow vertically throughout our lives oftentimes in a haphazard way. Mm -hmm. But boy, those heat opportunities are a great opportunity for us to observe ourselves and other people in their heat and say, how do we leverage this heat and say, this is a great moment for your growth. This is an invitation. This is an inflection point on your journey. And if we have eyes to see that and ears to hear those things going on around us, well, we're much more likely to be influential in being able to come in as somebody to elevate that sense-making and okay. or provide colliding perspectives.
2: And the people you work with, what do you see as the biggest limiter of their
0: growth? I'm going to assume that you're looking for an answer that is relevant for the individual, but I'm going to answer it in a different way than I think you're looking for. I don't, I don't think I'm looking for anything. Okay. <laughs> so I have, um, I have observed that most organizations, most groups of people are not very good at resolving hard conflicts. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are lots of groups that are good at dealing with normal conflicts like uh, you know technical or tactical issues, and they can have a fair fight about that, and it's not a problem. And, and people may get excited about it, but it's not deeply emotional for them necessarily. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it is. But there's this other class of conflicts that has to do with relational health and relational damage and i'm stealing from my friend pat murray out in california and he calls these real issues capital r capital i and these real issues are issues that have a deep emotional load and they generally exist because somebody got hurt and trust has been eroded Mm. now this relational damage is rampant. It's everywhere. And we know how to play nice with each other, even when there's relational damage and pretend like nothing's wrong. Um, But something is, when something is wrong, we know it. Mm -hmm. Both of us know it, but we've also just agreed tacitly, we're colluding to not talk about it Mm -hmm. because it'd be too painful, we think, to talk about it. So I think the fact that we have so many cultures at a macro and micro level that are ill-equipped To resolve those real issues is a huge problem Mm. because when we can't give and receive feedback as a gift, when we can't hear the hard things about ourselves, when we're not open to hearing the hard things about ourselves, we don't have a lens, we don't have that colliding perspective to even tell us there's a different way. Mm. And so um, I'm really, really excited about, I'm passionate about cultures where productive conflict can thrive,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? And that, that conflict can be destructive if it's not managed well, but it can also be incredibly productive. It can bond teams together. It, and in fact, I don't know anything as good as productive conflict for bonding teams together tightly. Um, but that's that's not a common culture. How
2: do you create that culture? That's why you have a job. That's why you... Well,
0: <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> my 12-step program. Yeah, right. Uh, so I think there's two things. One, there's there are tools and behaviors and structures that can be leveraged to help people walk that journey of, of having more and more better conflict, mm-hmm. more and more of those con- conversations and having better conflict. Mm-hmm. Simultaneously, there's an internal journey, which is a journey of maturation. So I think that there's a requirement that people have more selflessness, more courage and more humility. All of us need this Mm -hmm. to to tackle more and more difficult real issues. So um, part of it is having the tools and the structures Mm -hmm. and part of it is being willing to grow as an individual in my own maturity and know that I'm part of the problem. Mm. And part of it is having somebody, an elevated sense maker to help me grow along that journey. Okay. So I think there's pathways to do that. And mostly the problem, I think if there's one ingredient that generally gets in the way is we just chicken out. Like we know we need to have the conversation. We just chicken out. Hmm. Or we we envision that the conversation will be so destructive that we're like, I'm not going to risk it. I'd just rather be in an armed truce where we're not shooting at each other, but we're hunkered down defensively than risk their, the bullets fly. Hmm.
2: It seems like that
0: um, puts such a low value on someone who they are. It is. It's disrespectful, isn't it? Mm. Like it, we, we can rationalize it all we want to, that I'm not going to try to be in right relationship with them for whatever reason I want to come up with. But the fact of the matter is, if we love people, if we value them, we will seek to restore right relationship. And it sure is good to have a friend who can help you do it too. Wow. Um, I want to move on and talk about Enneagram. Oh, Enneagram, yes. I've gotten really excited about about um, the Enneagram because of its power in my own life for my own journey uh-huh. um, and because of the way we've been leveraging it with clients on their own transformational journeys.
2: For someone who doesn't know what Enneagram is, can you just kind of give the history of it and what
0: it is? Uh,
2: yeah. It's <laughs> a long
0: history, right? Yeah, this is the blind leading the blind a little bit. So uh, I think I feel like Enneagram is sort of like chess, in that you can learn some of the basics and figure out how to make some moves really easily, but becoming a grandmaster would take a lifetime. And even then there's always going to be somebody who knows more than you do. Mm -hmm. So I am a babe in the woods. I I heard about the Enneagram six years ago, uh, tended to poo poo it as voodoo magic. Didn't want to get my horoscope read. And then a year ago, uh, a good friend of mine, Daniel Fuller, whom I respect greatly, he started introducing me to some of the concepts and I was hooked pretty quickly. Mm. So, Um, I understand that there are people who are skeptical. I was absolutely a skeptic and I'm not an all in Homer, but I keep discovering deeper wisdom and, uh, and helpfulness and truth Mm -hmm. in, in the tool. Uh, George box is a British mathematician who says all models are wrong, but some are useful. Mm. So the Enneagram is a, a model that is of course wrong because it cannot completely reflect human development and personality, but I've found it very useful so far.
2: It doesn't help that the enneagram symbol is a nine-pointed star, <laughs> <laughs> looks like a pentagram.
0: Indeed, the devil symbol. Um, although that's a helpful symbol when you understand the enneagram. Yeah. So I I think of the enneagram as not so much a personality model as a human growth model. Okay. And the way I understand it, and I'm I'm not again I'm I'm only a year into this and just scratching the surface of it. But the way I've I've had it explained to me and it makes sense is that as we enter the world we pretty quickly discover that, um, uh, the world is not completely safe. Mm -hmm. There's danger. Um, if we want to be happy in this world, we're going to have to figure out ways to make that happen. And we can't rely completely on other people to meet those needs. And so we start wrapping, um, some personality around ourselves, some traits around ourselves to protect ourselves or to be successful in this world. And according to the Enneagram, there are nine basic mechanisms that we adopt to protect ourselves in this world. Mm -hmm. And once you've adopted one of those primary mechanisms, it tends to chart a path for you throughout life because you get better and better at using that mechanism. Mm -hmm. And so it's really nine different development or growth paths throughout life. So that's one of the things I really appreciate about the Enneagram is it's very dynamic in that, um, it can say, this is, if you're if you're approximately at point A on this path of maturation, this is probably what some of your past has looked like, and this is something you may experience in the future and mm. what that future development will look like. And um, I found the other personality assessments that we were talking about, they don't have that, that capacity because they're a different thing. They were never built that way. Mm. But that's what the Enneagram is. It's a growth model for human development to say, um, you've wrapped this these personality characteristics around yourself and they're important for you. They are survival mechanisms. They are success mechanisms for you. But as you start getting into your 20s and your 30s and maybe your 40s, you start realizing this stuff that's helped me be successful or protected me in this world, it's got a shadow side. It's got a dark side to it. And maybe I don't want to keep all of that. Mm. And you start th- realizing that the security blanket that you've wrapped around you is starting to choke you a little bit. And maybe mm. it's time to let, that, let some of that go. And the enneagram says here's what these nine different journey paths would look like. So there are nine different what are called types in enneagram. Type one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and different authors and uh, t- practitioners of the enneagram have different names for each of the different types, um, which can be somewhat helpful in understanding what it is and remembering them, but can also be a little dangerous because once you've got the label on it, that that has baggage because every word you label it with in English. Uh, has connotations for everybody who's hearing it that Mm -hmm. may or may not be accurate for that Enneagram piece. So I've heard people just say, I, you know, I've kind of dropped the labels. I just go type one through nine and I'm like, yeah, I get that. But I think the labels are still helpful for people, at least initially when they're learning the Enneagram.
2: Okay. And are you using this in, in the work with Kairos? Like we are. And what's that look like when you take yeah, it into so a corporation? Yeah, so first
0: and foremost, uh, the three of us on the Kairos team are using it individually in our own personal growth, okay. and it's been deeply impactful for all three of us. Secondly, we're using it as a team to understand each other better in deeper ways that we didn't understand before. And then thirdly, I think um, maybe most importantly, ah eh, this isn't most important, but thing that's uh, newest for us is we've started using it with clients. Mm. And... Um, not everybody i think wants to learn the enneagram or is interested in what the enneagram has to say and that's fine but for those who are open to it or find power in it or find it to be a useful model we've started walking with them in that Uh, a lot of the work that we do is helping teams create a culture where they can offer and receive feedback as a gift within that culture Mm -hmm. within that team and the enneagram has been a lens for us to ask some better questions about how that other per, how each member of the team shows up in the world. Mm-hmm. And we're finding that there's some deep insight that resonates with people in ways that we've never seen before. Like we've asked, I mean, we pride ourselves on being able to ask pretty good questions. We found the lens of the Enneagram has, has enabled us to ask even better questions that just get right to the heart of the matter with some people mm. in ways that we've never been able to do before. So that's been a really helpful place for us.
2: If someone wants to get started with the Enneagram, what, you, what would you tell them to do?
0: Yeah, so... Um, One, you can just Google it. It's spelled E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. And first thing that'll pop up is the Enneagram Institute, which I think has some good basic information to pay attention to. Okay, Um, There's an excellent primer out by Suzanne Stabile and Ian Cron called The Road Back to You. It's got a bit of a Christian flavor to it. It's not too heavy handed, but if that's not your your jam, you might consider different resources. Uh, Different books are out there. There's some uh, Riso and Hudson and, or Rizzo, I don't remember, I don't know how we pronounce his name, I think Rizzo, yeah. and uh, Helen Palmer is another author I've been paying attention to, um, and Richard Rohr is a Catholic priest who's written amazing things about the Enneagram, and he, he has a very uh, Christian spiritual uh, perspective on what he does there. Um, the other advice that I have is don't take an Enneagram test. Why not? Uh, I I think the Enneagram tests have some level of accuracy. So far, what I've observed is that many of the Enneagram tests are behavioral. Mm. And uh, the problem is the Enneagram is more about why you do behaviors than the behaviors that you do. And so you can have two or more different types who have the same exact behavior, but their motivation is different for that behavior. And so asking about the behavior doesn't necessarily uncover mm. what you really need to uncover.
2: And then how, how do you, if I'm not going to take a test, how do I self-identify? Yeah, I
0: think the best way is to do some reading, either some light reading or some heavy deep reading about each of the nine different types, and then figure out which one makes you cringe. And that's probably the type that you are. Ah, uh, So I, um,
2: I've been trying for six to eight months to tr- figure out which number I am. Mm-hmm. and really struggled. I could read every one of them and find something in there that was true about me and something in there that wasn't true about me. Mm-hmm. My wife finally told me, you're a five. Mm-hmm.
0: And I read it, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're right, I'm a five. Um, certain types have a harder time self-identifying than others okay. because part of their, their inner compass is that they don't trust their own voice or they don't know their own voice. hmm Uh, That's not as common with fives, but sometimes that happens with type nines or with type sixes. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, I'm lucky as a type eight, most type eights, they read type eight, they're like, yep, that's me. And they also say, and I kind of like it until (laughs) until they, until they realize some of the dark side, then like, Ooh, that's bad. Yeah. That's bad. Got to watch out for that. Okay. So one of the things that is most um, powerful or useful about the Enneagram is that at least on my journey, and I I think I can speak a little bit for other people, but mostly for myself, is it has given me a much deeper compassion for myself, Mm. and not in a sort of let myself off the hook kind of way, but a understanding, giving myself grace for being where I am on my journey, Mm -hmm. also having some vision for what the future could look like and what's what's possible Mm -hmm. in my own growth and maturation, and that's been, that's given me a freedom that I haven't had before that feels really healthy. It's also given me the enneagram has given me deeper compassion for all the people that I come in contact with mm. especially if I know their enneagram type because I think man it's hard being a type 8 like me but then I look at a type 5 I'm like oh man that'd be hard being a type 5 and I look at a type 1 I'm like oh that'd be so hard being a type 1 like there's just the human journey mm-hmm. is hard and understanding the ways in which it's hard for another person in a very visceral and tangible way I think uh, has really resonated with me in my heart and given me, unlocked some compassion that I didn't have before for people.
1: We are going to pause the conversation right here. The conclusion to my interview with Chip will show up in your feed next Thursday morning. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to tweet a photo of what you were doing as you listen to the show. Be sure to mention at No Indie Show with the hashtag doing my best. My favorite tweet will win a forthcoming No Indie t-shirt. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it. And don't forget to leave a rating and review in Apple Podcast. Find me on the socials at No Indie Show and learn more at NoIndie.com. Thank you for listening.